Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. It turns out Argentina was not the only shock election last week. In the Netherlands, the right populace scored another victory, shocking the establishment by winning the largest number of votes in nationwide elections. Will the Dutch be picking up Javier Malay-style chainsaws? This is part of a much larger movement where voters are rejecting across the West the center-left elite that's currently running our countries off a cliff, both socially and economically. So first, what happened in the Netherlands? In elections last week, the right populist Party for Freedom won by far the most seats in Parliament, making it the country's largest party. The left media focused on their immigration stance. They want more quality control, as do many people in Europe, and their hostility to the totalitarian bureaucrats in the EU, which they would like Holland to exit. But what translated those stances into a winning coalition was economic mismanagement. Rising energy prices and climate mandates that could wipe out Dutch farmers crystallized regular Dutch who feel they're neglected, that their government isn't serving them anymore, that it's actually attacking them instead. Indeed, in the face of farmers protesting to preserve their communities and livelihoods, the ruling socialists denounced the protesters as, quote, rude, unacceptable, and absolute disgrace, and then shot them with water cannons. I've mentioned in recent videos that the populist backlash could come faster in Europe, partly because of the parliamentary system and flexible election calendars, which makes it easier for upstarts to enter government, and partly because the Soviet Union, or European Union, imposes restrictions that would make Americans throw things off ships. In fact, right populists are now either the largest party or one of the largest parties in Hungary, Poland, Italy, Finland, Sweden, and now Holland. They are growing fast in Germany, Austria, Belgium, Romania, and Spain. So what's next? What's next is Europe's elites, like those in America, have lost the plot both culturally as well as economically. As Chaya Rychik, also known as Libs of TikTok, puts it, if you're against stabbing children, giving them porn in school, chopping off their body parts, or sending them to drag shows, then you are, quote, far right. But in normal times, swing voters might dislike all of these things, but they don't base their vote on it. That is now changing because of anger over the economy, over inflation and growth. Mentioned a few weeks ago how swing voters in the U.S. are now decisively coming over to Donald Trump, not for the body chopping, but for the inflation and fears about losing their jobs. The economy wakes the lion, but once it's awake, it does not stop. Now, mainstream parties in Europe have generally responded by isolating populists, using the media to tar them as, quote, far right, or even worse. They quarantine them to keep them and their voters out of power. This leaves the anger to simmer and grow, but now economic mismanagement is turning that simmer into a boil. My guess is we will see a lot more populist wins and a lot more triggered journalists in the next couple of years. They'll fight back, sure, but every fight they lose more of the people, throw in the clown-level economic mismanagement, and I'd say change is coming. Yesterday, Bloomberg reported that hardship withdrawals from retirement accounts are soaring. Turns out now we know why consumers are spending their rating the 401k because cat food is, in a pinch, edible. According to a study by Fidelity Investments, last year 2.3% of American workers, that's almost a million, took a hardship withdrawal from their retirement accounts, which is up 30% on the year. It was even worse for those with a 401k. For them, 2.8% took a hardship withdrawal, 
including so-called in-service withdrawals, the number was 3.2%. Why are they withdrawing? The top two reasons given were avoiding eviction or foreclosure, so losing their house, and unpaid medical bills. This point, fully one in six American workers is carrying an outstanding loan on their retirement accounts, which is up nearly half a million on the year. As Bloomberg put it, quote, Americans are increasingly tapping their retirement savings amid higher cost of living pressures, adding that Americans outside the wealthiest 20%, so the bottom 80% of us, have, quote, run out of extra savings generated during the pandemic and now have less cash than when COVID began. Keep in mind, these are Americans with jobs, so we can only imagine what's happening to people who don't have full-time income. So what's next? The background here is pandemic savings soared, propping up consumer spending, but that is now apparently running out. Hardship withdrawals now join record credit card balances, paying 21% interest as worrying signs that Americans are draining out financially. A recent survey found that 57% of Americans can't cover an unexpected $1,000 cost, and now millions more are on their way. When they are tapped, they will stop spending, dragging down receipts across the economy, and so much for the soft landing. More important, soaring withdrawals are pulling down retirement savings. So the average 401k balance was just over 107000 last year. That's down 4000 in just three months. If you're earning 5% returns a year, 107000 would give you a monthly retirement income of precisely $448.75. Even with Social Security, that's just over 2000 to live on. So imagine living on 2000 with no job right now. Finally, Congress plans a new rule in 2024 to make it even easier to withdraw retirement savings. Millions of Americans likely will. That would give a boost to consumer spending just in time for the election. It could even soften that landing at the expense of millions more drained out at retirement age. A lot of the statistics I talk about day-to-day can seem dire, but over time, like grains of sand, they add up to a catastrophe that, as always, nobody saw it coming. A word from our sponsors. If you follow Bitcoin, you probably know that the halving is just six months away, meaning we're about to get a big drop in the supply of new Bitcoin. We've seen that this can send Bitcoin's price up, so selling Bitcoin now to cover expenses could end up costing you. Credit card rates recently hit 24%, but borrowing against your Bitcoin with Unchained can save you a lot. You hold your keys and you can verify that your Bitcoin is secure anytime. Don't be forced to sell the bottom and miss out. For more info, go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. The spicier corners of the internet have been jammed recently with videos of young people lamenting how it is impossible to get by even working full time. How they grew up in a four-bedroom house their parents owned, and now they are coming up on 40 years old, eating ramen with roommates, watching HGTV reruns of the glamorous lives of people who do own houses. Well, now we've got some numbers to go with that. A few days ago, the Social Security Administration released new data on wages, reporting that half of American workers made under $41,000 last year. Adjusted for inflation, that's actually lower than it was before the pandemic. And keep in mind that's using official inflation numbers. Also keep in mind incomes rise with age. So that median worker is going to be statistically roundabout 40. 
that medium wage comes to roughly $3,400 per month. According to Rent.com, the median rent in the United States is currently almost $2,000. The average car payment, even for a used car, is $528. That leaves precisely $894 for food, utilities, medical insurance and premiums, clothes, car repairs, sick children, and that once-a-year dinner out at McDonald's. So yes, it is a struggle. And don't even think of buying a house. The cost of a mortgage on the median house at the moment is nearly $3,000, which would consume roughly 90% of that median income. You would need to shoplift your groceries to really make that one work. Now, put it together, and the numbers say that the 40-year-old with roommates and ramen is spot on for millions of young Americans. So how did we get here? Well, what makes us richer is productivity. And ever since 2000, American productivity has been in freefall. It's actually widely discussed even by mainstream economists. Essentially, something broke in the economy. So what broke? Easy, manipulated interest rates and soaring government spending. Between 1954 and 1999, real interest rates, that's after inflation, were roughly 2%. Since 2000, they've been negative 1%, meaning that you were paid to borrow. So those low rates meant easy money flowed to garbage businesses that feasted on the cheap money but didn't actually make the economy grow. We got a series of tissue fire economic booms that flared up and burned out, knocking out millions each recession. Meanwhile, soaring government spending meant more and more of the productive economy is stolen by bureaucrats and used to chain the rest of us with regulatory mandates from climate to diversity that knock out what's left. Since 2000, federal spending has grown by nearly half as a share of the economy with state and local on top of that. We get to survive on the leftovers. So what's next? Brought to you by Unchained. Unfortunately, the policies that got us here are accelerating. Interest rates are high at the moment since the Fed got caught with its hand in the cookie jar, but financial markets are already projecting lightning rate cuts next year as the Fed scrambles back to its day job pumping out inflation. Meanwhile, federal spending is soaring, with the deficit this year double the size of last year's trillion-dollar take. In fact, we're getting to the point where a trillion is the table ante in Washington. If we do not change course, which doesn't look like we are, it will not be stagnation anymore. It will be outright decline. 30 million small businesses in America, the salt of the land, the lifeblood of the economy, the employer of last resort, are struggling, according to the National Federation of Independent Business, with their monthly optimism index crashing the hardest since the 2008 crisis. Now, day-to-day, the stock market hogs the headlines as a business barometer, but half of Americans either own or work at a small business, and for them, the recession is already here. Every month, the NFIB surveys thousands of small businesses on business conditions and challenges. Forbes calls it a finger on the pulse of small business in America. And according to the latest survey, small business owners are expecting declining sales, declining profits. They're not building inventory, they can't get credit, and they cannot find qualified workers. In fact, profits are close to their 2020 lows in the depths of the pandemic. Meanwhile, small business costs continue to climb, especially labor and energy costs. What's hitting hardest right now is inflation and labor. Input and material prices are rising while small businesses cannot find good people. 
perhaps because 5 million Americans dropped out of the labor force during COVID, either retiring early or lured onto the couch by those soothing government benefits that last a lifetime so long as you keep voting for them. Going to the numbers, the Optimism Index hit 90.7 last month. That marks the 22nd month below the 50-year average. In fact, during that period, it is ranked between the 5th and 16th percentile of lowest readings. The last time Optimism was actually healthy was December of 2021. And notably, the Small Business Index is a lot gloomier than the Conference Board's Consumer Index, suggesting that consumers are either sending their money to big stores or that inflation and labor problems are eating up profits despite footloose consumers. According to the survey, the single biggest problem for small business right now continues to be inflation, but recession is now moving up the ranks, with just one in four small business owners expecting better business conditions over the next six months. 43% of business owners report that they cannot find enough qualified people. And of the small businesses trying to hire people, fully 90% report finding few or no qualified applicants. Meanwhile, most small businesses reported falling sales in the past three months. Note that's nominal sales as in before inflation. Add back inflation and it is even worse. Finally, two out of three small businesses expect profits to fall or disappear in the coming year. Of those expecting lower profits, 42% blame weaker sales or lower prices, 35% the cost of materials or labor, and 11% blame seasonal factors or higher taxes and regulation. There was a bright spot. Shortages are now rare, especially in transportation since trucks are running empty, and in construction since nobody's building houses. So what is next? What's next is all this gloom is happening when consumers are still buying hand over fist. Millions of them are now putting it on buy now, pay later, or credit cards that they cannot pay off. With 70% of Americans now reporting stress over personal finances and 61% living paycheck to paycheck, the spending lifeline for small businesses is not going to last. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Money Metals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to moneymetals.com. A few days ago, BlackRock, the world's biggest fund manager and reliable sponsor of left-wing political causes, came out with a heavily promoted report pitching $4 trillion in climate spending in the third world, all of which will come out of your pocket because the weather gods will not sleep until you are in the pod eating the bugs. Now, BlackRock kicked off with the hilarious claim that climate-related boondoggles in third world countries, are currently woefully underfunded. So they, quote, require significant public sector reforms and private sector innovation, blending public and private capital. Translating, public sector reforms means more tax dollars, ideally structured in a way that it becomes a permanent siphon that you cannot see, like, say, the World Bank or the IMF today. 
And private sector innovation in this context means those tax dollars would bribe companies to plow your retirement savings and your mutual funds into zero-carbon unicorn farts that rust away in tropical jungles. Incidentally, there is a word for public-private blending. It starts with an F and it ends in an ism. Indeed, BlackRock complains that existing blending has not been enough to force multiply private capital. As they put it, quote, public funding has been ineffective in mobilizing private capital at scale, four trillion in scale. So they want more, a lot more. Note, BlackRock's $4 trillion dream siphon is on top of existing projections, their base view, for climate spending, which was already $1.7 trillion in unicorn farts last year and rising fast. In fact, it's up 40% in a single year. So why plow so much into climate? I mean, aside from the angry weather gods. Well, BlackRock tells us why. Grimly warning of lower economic growth, and this one is cute, lower energy demand. Breaking that down, the lower economic growth would, in theory, be because we are not spending $4 trillion on useless gigaws. But, of course, that would leave $4 trillion to be spent on useful things. In other words, you're digging $4 trillion fewer holes to fill back in, leaving all those workers and shovels to go do something useful, like, say, build 20 million houses. As for the reduced energy demand, that one is just bizarre. Failing to build thousands of windmills to rust in the jungle has precisely zero to do with how much energy people need to drive cars or heat houses or cook food. Even if the windmills work, it wouldn't impact demand. So BlackRock either doesn't have any economists or they sent them to go buy up houses while the English majors wrote the econ section. So what is next? Climate is one of the most successful government scams in history. It is right up there with central banking, and it is evolving fast. Back in June, I did a video on an intergovernment plan. They were having a big meeting in Paris to plow between 14 trillion and 30 trillion into green boondoggles in the third world. This little BlackRock gambit would spread those tentacles into your retirement accounts. What happens if Argentina gets rid of its central bank? Will Argentinians be carrying around bundles of fresh greenbacks or better yet gold coins while former bankers shine their shoes? In just over a week, Javier Malay takes office after his shock win in the Argentinian election. He's promising to close the central bank and ditch the local currency. So what would that look like? In short, going by other dollarizations, it would reduce inflation dramatically. It's currently running 143% in Argentina. That would lead to much faster economic growth and rising prosperity. And it would make Argentina's banks stronger, reducing the risk of a financial crash. Put it together, and Argentina would go from perennial basket case to well on its way to prosperity. Of course, the next question is, will it happen? There, the punchline is, dollarization is not nearly as hard as it looks, meaning Argentina could inspire many other countries to follow suit, many of which are running inflation at 40% or above. So first, what are the functions of a central bank? What would it mean to get rid of it? The two most important are manipulating the money supply, mainly with interest rates, and banking regulation. Regulation in this context meaning bailing out insolvent banks. Put them together and you get the central bank cycle of boom, bust, bailout. Of course, Argentina's central bank has been one of the worst in the world at this, delivering no less than five 
hyperinflation since 1975. So what happens if you close it? Well, if you get rid of it altogether and return to gold, then it's easy. You get steady growth, stable prices, and widening prosperity. Alas, returning to gold is a radical prospect for most voters. So what Javier Malay actually proposed was a kind of halfway house, dollarization, meaning Argentina adopts the U.S. dollar. This would convert Argentina from that perennial basket case to, at least from a monetary perspective, no worse than the Fed. Compared to hyperinflation, that's a heck of a deal, for the moment at least. So what happens if he does shutter the central bank and adopt the dollar? Some trivial regulatory functions will probably go to the Ministry of Finance, things like oversight of payment systems, cross-bank payments, things like that. But by outsourcing the actual currency, those two great central bank functions, the manipulation of the bailouts, go from Argentinian levels to mere Washington levels. Still there, but much improved. The final question is, can he do it? While Malay lacks a congressional majority, dollarization actually isn't as radical as it looks. In fact, both Ecuador and El Salvador dollarized recently under normal governments. They did not need a lion-haired Ron Paul fan with a chainsaw. In both countries, it was a resounding success. Inflation went from between 15 and 40 percent to just one and a half percent. Compare that to Argentina's 143. Meanwhile, post-dollarization economic growth went from among the worst in Latin America to among the best, while Argentina continued to lose another couple decades of stagnation. So what's next? Given Malay's passion and the splendid track record of dollarization, I actually think he'll get it done. Of course, the dollar has its own problems, which are getting worse, but it would give the Argentinian people a break from the abysmal monetary governance they have suffered for going on a century. A few days ago, Joe Biden's handlers, frustrated that the American people are not buying their propaganda on the economy, went on the attack, writing, quote, let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, it's time to stop the price gouging. Give American consumers a break. Now, the tweet got almost as many comments as likes, known in the industry as a ratio, and basically means the world is laughing at you, which Joe Biden is used to. Of course, this isn't Joe Biden writing. After all, it's a coherent sentence with punctuation and capitalization. It's got everything. A surefire tell that this is his handlers talking. So digging in, inflation actually never went away. There are no prices to come down. It's not like prices went up 20% and then came back down. No, all we have today is a slower pace of additional inflation. That 20% odd inflation that's already occurred under Biden, those are official numbers, those are here forever. They are not transitory. They are permanent. And we know this because since 1955, we've had precisely one year of deflation, which was 2008, and that was gobbled right up with the following inflation. So if something cost $100 pre-pandemic, and now it's 120 given the current inflation rate, next year it'll be 125 Nothing is coming down, ever. Now, true, that is better than it used to be before the recession came into view and trimmed the inflation rate, but nothing's coming down. Those new prices are here to stay. In fact, they are compounding at the new rate at one of the worst inflation rates since the 1970s. That's right now. Beyond failing Econ 101, which one would hope somebody in the White House grasps, this matters because elite journalists and Paul Krugman keep expressing befuddlement how Americans are still so upset about inflation, even though it's not as fast as last year. In fact, Americans are more than upset. Inflation is currently the top issue for voters, about 39%. 
with scores four times higher than any other political issue. So what's next? The problem here is beyond the economic literacy, Biden's handlers are going down a disturbing hole going after price gouging. That's a strategy that could make our current crisis much worse. To illustrate, take groceries. Grocery stores make precisely 2.2 cents on the dollar. So it costs them 98 cents to sell a dollar in groceries. Meanwhile, inflation is currently over 3%, meaning those 98 cents will cost 101 cents next year. So the only way they can, quote, bring their prices down, as Biden demands and may start requiring, is to literally run at a loss. They would wake up in the morning, work all day, and lose money until they go out of business. We've actually been here before on this kind of intervention. Nixon attacked price gouging in the 70s, leading to shortages and mile-long gas lines. FDR went there on steroids in the 30s, in the process turning a boring stock market crash into the longest crisis in American history. It is one thing for government to screw up. That's what we're used to. They do it all the time. But when they start with the price gouging talk, it is a sign that they are going from incompetence to predator. If it keeps up, we could be headed back not to the 1970s, but to the Depression. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanons.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.